Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 101 of Canadian Real Estate Investing 101. I'm your host, real estate broker and analyst, Daniel Foch. I am your other host, mortgage agent and partner at Land Bank Advisors, real estate investor and co-host of this podcast. But Dan, did we change the name here? No, we didn't. I, uh, although I, I think we should, um, we are going to have like a real estate investing 101 Canadian real estate investing 101 kind of thing because I feel like the course space is very U.S. tailored. Um, but before we get to that, maybe we'll do a little bit of housekeeping. I guess that's on the housekeeping list, but it's at the end of my list. So um, there we go. Let's let's keep that list. Yeah. So housekeeping number one: uh, meetups. So we brought on an amazing event uh, events manager named. We did not bring on an amazing event. We brought in an amazing events manager. We're going to have a lot of amazing events. Uh, as a result of this. Um, but the next one is Kitchen Waterloo, July 17th. Um, if you want to RSVP to those, realestatemeetups.ca is the link. Uh, it goes to our meetup uh, page. And there are events going on coast to coast. We'll see. You'll see a big ramp up in September. We're in the summer season right now, so not, not a lot going on. Um, housekeeping number two, merch, realestatemerch.ca. We have merch. Love the merch. Live, laugh, love or is uh, is cool. But live, laugh, leverage on a pillow is way cooler. And Dan, great job with the domain names, realestatemerch.ca. I mean, we like to keep things simple around here, don't we? Yeah. I mean, our, our podcast name is literally the most descriptive thing in the world. Um, also, .ca <laughs> domains. SEO guys. Yeah. They, yeah. Dot, .ca domains are pretty easy. Otherwise, just make it easy for people, right? Like then yeah, they're listening. They can remember, okay, what was it? Like, oh yeah, it was real estate meetups. Like, cause it was about real estate meetups. And then it's .ca cause this is Canada. Um, and then I guess we're gonna have another one coming. Um, we'll have to see if real estate course.ca is available because it's actually not unfortunately, but uh, oh, I know. Um, what are we going to do? People yeah. Are, I'm going to have no idea where to find us. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but we'll have to make some good Furu promotion videos for because we're getting into the real estate 101 business. Um, we will have a course. If you want to send us an email for advanced access, we're still kind of in like the discovery phase, like actually trying to create the curriculum. So, and like, um, do we rent a Lamborghini or a Ferrari to, for like, you know, how many uh, Rolexes are we going to wear? <laughs> how many like the boardroom table with like the guys and the pointing at the chart? Like, okay, when it when it stops going up, then that's when you sell, and then. <laughs> <laughs> it's really complicated stuff over here. Yeah, then, you, then you buy right? your, uh, then you buy your chart, your, your Dodge Challenger, or whatever, uh, Hellcat. Um, anyway, what are we talking in all about? Today? Well, in all seriousness, we are coming out with a course, and it is going to be awesome. And we are going to make but, videos yeah. like that to promote it. Yeah, as that's a, all. As that's all joke. serious. All <laughs> Anyways, let's get into today's uh, episode, Dan, because we do have a lot to cover uh, today. We're talking about Canadian banks. They are facing pressure to increase the amount of cash that they are holding. I wonder why. CIBC, one of the main Canadian banks, is under remediation for letting people take on too much mortgage debt. And Toronto's condo market being in quote-unquote a moment of reckoning. And, da, da, da. Yeah, and not to be too bearish with the headlines, there is another one that I didn't make it into that list because we have extreme technical difficulties today. Um, oh. But that was that uh, we did just see the strongest spring market ever in Canadian history. There um, we go. So most the one piece of good growth. information we don't yeah. have time to cover. <laughs> to offset the rest. Well, we'll make sure we got time to cover it because it actually, it's actually bearish from my perspective. I think like when you see a run that strong, it's like, 
it can't go up like that again for mm-hmm. one more month usually um but the rest of those articles have a lot to do with a, a group called osfi and osfi has been in the news a lot lately it's like we're going through this phase where the new generation of canadians realize the significance of all of these different financial institutions in Canada. Like last year it was the bank of Canada and now it's OSFI. Um, so a couple of these have to do with OSFI, which is the office of the superintendent of financial institutions founded in 1987, an independent agency of the government of Canada reporting to the minister of finance created to in quotes, contribute to public confidence in the Canadian financial system. Tough job. Oh, thanks guys. Doing a great job. Already. They are doing a good job. Cause like everyone in my TikTok comments is like, Canadian banks are so strong, which is true. I agree with that, by the way, just as a, for all of those people yelling <laughs> at me in my comments. Crowd. Thank you. I appreciate the engagement. Um, back to Offsy. They are an independent federal government agency that regulates, supervises some 400 federally regulated financial institutions and get this day in 1200 pension plans to determine whether they are in sound financial condition and meeting their requirements. Offsy works closely with its federal partners, including the Department of Finance, the Bank of Canada, the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. It's crazy. I did not know we had 1,200 pension plans in Canada or yeah, 400 wild. financial institutions, but I guess there's a lot of credit unions, stuff like that. And then pension plans, maybe like each municipality has like their own. I don't know, but that's I, just I only wild. know like the big stat. ones, but maybe, uh, yeah, we'll have to maybe do some digging on that. Yeah. Um, so back to those headlines about OSFI. I also like that you say OFSI because it is the most, it's the worst acronym in the world, which we're going to get to, by the way. That's my dyslexia. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> RBC faces, actually, no, everybody says it OFSI. Like it I just, know, it should I be know. that. But anyway, I have a little part about this here. So it's funny. <laughs> But RBC is facing pressure. or So these are three headlines that kind of came up back to back. First one, this was like all in a span of 24 hours, these headlines. RBC faces pressure to bolster capital after banking watchdog hikes buffer. Ban- banking watchdog, not doc, um, was OSFI in this example. The analyst says CIBC also faces scrutiny with the lowest CET1 ratio of the six banks. The second article here is financial Regulator OSFI, there you go, Dan, raises minimum capital amount that big banks must have to hand on hand to cover uh, losses. Regulator raises domestic stability buffer to three point five percent, previously from three. So doesn't seem like a lot, three to three and a half percent. But when you're talking in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, that that's a pretty big chunk of change right there. Yeah, I mean it is. It's well, it's one six, right? So. Um we will talk about that one after, um, but let's get to the last OSFI headline here. Um, by the way, all the all three of these headlines did come out in a 24-hour span. So it was like that day, I just remember like this was last week, but it, I remember being like, wow, this is, this is a little weird. Something's anyway. happening here. CIBC under remediation from OSFI over mortgage portfolio from the Global Mail. So, okay, Dan, these all came out in 24 hours. Not great sentiment... Um, you know, what do you make about all this? Um, honestly, this is like kind of just like bear market Bible stuff. Like read me that article. And like, again, I'm not like super worried about this, but it's just like, these are scary headlines. Like this is like the media loves like, and now media is in bear market mode. It seems like again, (laughs) read me, read me some of these and we'll just go through it and kind of, and chat a little bit about it. 
The Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, better known as CIBC, has been under remediation orders from banking regulators, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, OSFI, for over a year, the Global Mail reports. The bank has been under scrutiny from the OSFI after a routine regulatory audit conducted by OSFI revealed breaches and rules that limit how indebted borrowers can be within their mortgage portfolio, according to sources familiar with the matter. Thousands of clients were said to have lines of credit or home equity lines, so HELOCs secured against their home, which combined with the CIBC mortgage, pushed them above acceptable thresholds for total debt obligations relative to their home's value or income. Does this sound like levering up or what? It is crazy. I mean, it's just like, it's funny because like it's literally the classic Canadian setup. It's like, I'm going to get a HELOC, taking the money out of my house and then going to get a mortgage to buy an investment property. Like that's just like, it's like just so, it's like the perfect trap. And guess and what? Not even, that investment property doesn't cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> and, and then, so so basically what was happening was, well, I'll get, I'll, this is from the article, the next piece, but and we'll try and explain it more in layman terms, but in some instances, while clients were required to close other credit lines as part of obtaining a CIBC mortgage, there was no follow-up by the bank to ensure compliance even after these mortgages had been issued. So basically, they they say, hey, you got to close that line of credit, otherwise we're not going to give you a mortgage. And then you're like, okay, sure. And then they give you the mortgage and then you don't close the line of credit. And so you now have too much leverage. <laughs> I didn't realize uh, the big six operated on the honors system. It's here, but, interesting, uh, right? Because like, you know, I, look, you don't want to say too much, right? But a lot of people in the industry would say, oh, you know, how many times, like a lot of people in the brokerage space say, oh, how many times did, and, and, and you know, the CIBC expose and a lot of this stuff, right? Like people are saying, oh, this is happening at a branch level. Like, again, I'm not saying that, but people in the industry, like nobody seemed exceptionally surprised that this was happening. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The article goes on to say that this discovery alarmed OSFI and led CIBC to engage consultants from Deloitte who helped review mortgages dating back decades and retool systems aimed at preventing such problems from reoccurring. In certain cases where non-compliance was identified quickly enough, adjustments could be made to bring loan profiles into line with regulatory requirements. However, New batches of problematic mortgages continued being found on CIBC's book, even in recent months. Man, I feel like this is out of like one of those movies where there's just like a bunch of people in suits walking into a boardroom with boxes full of files being like, okay, we got to find the problem. And then they're just like, holy shit, it's all a problem. Yeah, Yeah, like literally. It is weird, man. It's kind of alarming too because like everyone's like when people are saying, oh, yeah, you know, the Canadian market can crash like the the US market in 2008 or like this is our year 2008 and everyone's like no like our banks weren't giving uh subprime loans right and then it's like oh what did that oops. yeah maybe they <laughs> yeah, were literally. right anyway i don't know we I mean, just like, called I them something else yeah i mean i don't think like there's enough like it's not like in the US where you had banks that like just did like look at signature bank which has already failed recently like they were doing yeah. like, a ton of real estate stuff like it there's no no canadian bank is like category exposed i think cibc has the highest number um but nobody's like they're all diversified, right? And they're globally significant. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually don't think that there's like a large amount of systemic risk here, just to be clear, because like, I don't want people to be like, oh, Dan thinks that the C- Canadian banking system is going to fail. Like, I, by no means is that what I believe. But it's just funny to see kind of them peeking the curtain open and being like, oh, actually, we do do subprime loans. They're just DIY. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
The issue initially affected retail clients, but has since expanded to include those within the bank's Simply Financial brand, CIBC's digital-only banking subsidiary. As of now, the full extent of this issue remains unknown, and internal estimates suggest it could take up to two more years to fully resolve this issue. So the timing of these revelations coincides with OSFI expressing concerns about Canada's competitive housing market amid rising interest rates and has it's raised the or had it raised the uh, domestic stability buffer which is the other um article that we mentioned for and we're going to get into what a lot of that stuff is um to from three to three point five percent of their risk weighted assets cibc holds a higher proportional exposure to canada's mortgage market than any other big six oh, nice. banks, I was like right Dan just that. mentioned it's almost, like I, it's almost like i read that there's no such thing as an original thought <laughs> only only i have those remember with uh, with mortgages and other loans secured against real estate accounting for approximately 55% of its loan book. Yeah. So if you want to read more about this, um, there's a nice big old wall of text on OSFI's website called Capital Adequacy Requirements. Speaking of good acronyms. Wow. Does that actually work out to C-A-R? I really thought that... Uh, Awesome. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have. I didn't know they had it in them to come up with an acronym that good. I mean, theirs is so hard to pronounce. Off C Off Off I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of cars, though, so that's yeah, way better. Cars a great acronym. I feel like everyone says it. Off even though it is Osfi. Osfi stands for the Office of Superintendent of Financial Institutions. O S F I. By the way. Why does it have to be the office of the superintendent of financial institutions, by the way? Why can't it be like the superintendent's office of financial institutions? Their acronym should actually be Sophie instead of Offsy. They went like Yoda on us. They with did this totally. Stuff. Yeah, like, they totally did. That's like, what is say that actually. Oh man. This is this goes back to like, you know, let's make everything a little more complicated, uh, because that's what we do. I feel like if it was Yoda, it would be like Superintendent's Financial Institute Office of or whatever. But anyway, it's, it is a great idea. You should actually pitch that rebrand to them. They may need it after this whole, uh, oh, man. this year, this quarter, yeah. whatever. I mean, I've been really focused on a good acronyms lately, right? We've talked about it a lot. And, you know, half of these things I call acronyms are actually initialisms. An initialism is an acronym that is pronounced as individual letters. So that's, for instance, DNA. IRR, NPV, R2D2. <laughs> Keeping it with the Star Wars. I love it. And, and an acronym uh, is made up of the parts of the phrase it stands for and is pronounced like a word like ASAP. Although I feel like people say that one ASAP, uh, LOL, LOL, SCUBA. Mm-hmm. Did you know SCUBA was an acronym? NASA. <laughs> I did not. NASA, the owners of space. Uh, if you're there a Trailer Park Boys fan, AIDS is actually an acronym. Um, Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, look, before we keep pouring on about useless information here, let's talk about our acronym. There shouldn't be an acronym on here, OSFI and their C-A-R. Yeah. So they're a regulatory body in Canada that oversees banks and other financial institutions. One of the important things they do is set rules to make sure banks have enough money. This is profound, right? To have enough money to cover their risks and protect depositors like you and me. That sounds moderately important, I guess. Capital adequacy requirements are rules that determine how much money banks need to have to cover those risks that they take. These risks include things like the loans that they give out, right? Those HELOCs that they gave to, um, you know, I was going to say guys like you and me, but damn, we didn't take those. Um, And the investments that they make 
and of course their other financial activities. Speak for yourself. I have 20 HELOCs and 20 mortgages <laughs> and I closed them all in quotation marks. Uh, Boom. Now, uh, Think of it like a piggy bank. That was sarcasm, by the way, in case anybody wants. <laughs> that was a <laughs> what joke. a clarification do today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so think of it like a piggy bank, right? It, when you have a piggy bank, you put money inside to save it, right? The bank also needs to have money saved in case something goes wrong. That's where capital comes in. Capital is like the money the bank keeps in its piggy bank. It's the money the bank owns and doesn't owe to anyone else. It's that cushion of money that protects the bank and its customers if something bad happens, like... If people can't repay the loans that they took. So OSFI's capital adequacy requirements say the bank needs to have a certain amount of money, real money in its piggy bank based on the risks that it takes. So if it's running like a, you know, a lemonade stand with vodka in it, as an example, there's a little bit of liability associated with that. So it probably needs a little <laughs> bit more cash, right? The riskier activities a bank engaged in, the more money it needs to take uh, to have in its piggy bank. And these things are all weighted, the activities that they do. Now, this is important to understand because if a bank doesn't have enough money to cover its risks when something bad happens, not if, but when, because over enough time that will happen, it might not be able to pay back its depositors. So OSFI sets these requirements to make sure that the banks are financially stable enough and can protect the money of the people that have deposited in them. And America has given us a great example of what happens if you don't do this, right? With a couple of bank runs and bank failures, lately mm -hmm. that had to be bailed out by insurers or whatever. Um, so by having these requirements, OSFI aims to ensure that banks are safe and sound and people can trust them with their money because it's an important part of the Canadian financial system that our banks are stable, um, which I agree with, by the way, banks are stable in Canada. It's like having rules to make sure that the piggy bank is always full and ready to give your, your money back when you owe somebody money. And I, I think that um, Routledge actually says, it's, it's quoted in one of these articles, but you know Peter Routledge, who is the superintendent, the, the guy. <laughs> um, he says, you know, we want to do this while the economy is strong in Canada, while the economy is still showing signs of strength. And a lot of people would say, oh, well, it's, you know, the economy's nuts, like everything's so expensive, this, that, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is on paper, the economy is strong. Unemployment's exceptionally low. The housing market's ripping. Everybody's got jobs. Nobody can afford anything because inflation's so high, but let's put that one aside for now. Um, <laughs> and, and so... You do these things when, on paper, the economy is still strong so that it protects you against when the economy is weak. And he kind of says that in... And so they're almost... It's foreshadowing a little bit that they might not think the economy is going to be as strong moving forward. And it does come across as kind of a scary headline, but this is really them protecting again. They did this earlier last year, by the way, like to they increased it same similar amount. It was just the timing of all those headlines kind of hitting at the same time that was a little alarming anyway speaking of alarming let's go for another headline here <laughs> toronto's condo market in a quote moment of reckoning what does it mean for investors so i'm going to read a few excerpts here dan and i'll pass it off to you and then we'll have a chat about it a whopping 36 percent of toronto condos are owned by investors that is a lot but to be honest doesn't really surprise me but even as savvy buyers lose money they're not jumping ship just yet for at least a decade, a glittering glass box in the sky has been one of the hottest tickets in town. The Toronto condo investment has become a staple of the city and produced windfall profits, at least for those who bought at the right time. But a string of recent reports on property investments has raised some eyebrows, most notably one from the research firm Urbanation and CIBC Capital Markets found that for the first time, 
more than half of investors who bought pre-construction condo units in the GTA were losing money. Now, we covered this in a, in a prior episode, and this is a deeper dive on that. Another one, this time from Royal LePage, concluded that younger investors were turning their sights on single-family homes. And we're going to cover that one here. That's led some people to wonder, is this a moment of truth for the investment condo? The Star spoke to experts, that's the uh, the Star newspaper, spoke to experts, from researchers to real estate professionals, and though some believe the industry may be at a turning point, most agreed that despite the recent turbulence, condo investments will continue to shape the rental market for years to come, because it is always a good time to buy, baby, no matter what, come on. Disclaimer, that last part wasn't. It. That was a joke. Yeah, that last part wasn't in the article. Always a good time to buy and sell. That's <laughs> TM. Um... Okay, so let's let's unpack this one a little bit. So, I I do really think that we're we are currently already going through a period where we're seeing a big drop off of supply that is coming from density, which is what condos are in most cases. Um, it's interesting because like immigration is still strong. We saw population growth of a million people last year. We're likely going to hit that this year. We're on track to, and that creates excess demand. A lot of people like again if I remotely say that the housing market could go down everyone in my in my comments on social media is like but there's more people coming in a million people coming in every year and like they're, they're not wrong but um those people also need money interest rates have a role etc jordan skrinko has a good tweet on this it's like interest rates and immigration don't exist in a vacuum like the truth is somewhere in the middle there's like interest rate absolutists yeah. like only interest rates matter doesn't matter how many people are moving in here and then there's Immigration absolutist, where it's like a million people coming in, doesn't matter what the interest rate is. Um, but excess demand manifests in one of three ways from my perspective. Either number one, prices go up. Number two, more units get built to satisfy the demand. Or number three, that demand spills over. So if one of those three things is, or if two of those three things aren't happening, the other one is. So right now, if well, in, in Toronto, we just saw prices going up. And this we talk about this at the end, but we just saw the strongest spring market, the, bit, the most growth we've seen in a five-month period, actually everywhere in Canada. So prices are growing, going up. What happens if prices aren't going up? Well, it might mean that supply is satisfying that demand. And so more units are getting built. Well, we know that that's not happening either. So if prices stop going up and more units are getting built or and more units aren't getting built, so if two of those things aren't sat, being satisfied, then what is happening from my perspective and this is what i expect will happen in the canadian market is demand will be spilling out over or going elsewhere so it'll be spilling out of the gta and going into other markets because people can't afford to go to the gta and there's no supply and we just saw a drop in supply Thirty thousand starts last year Ten thousand starts so far this year or on, on track big drop big drop right um and jeremy withers who's quoted in the article estimates that by the end of um by the end of that that the i think decade um, two thirds of, of condos will be investor owned in the fullness of time. And we talk about this. I think we're heading towards the European housing model, low homeownership, high investor and in institutional ownership. And the thing is, mm-hmm. it's harder for institutions to own single family homes, harder for them to convert single family homes to cash flowing assets at scale, at least in Canada. We do have a cool guest coming on who is a CEO of a REIT who is doing some meaningful investment in this space in Canada. Um, but largely, we don't have a monolithic company like Blackstone or Invitation Homes buying single-family residential homes like they are in the U.S., both of whom, by the way, built that portfolio after Warren Buffett said he would 
buy every house in America after the 2008 crash if he could. <laughs> and he couldn't figure out how, but they did. Um, and this is where I think there's a bit of a renaissance period forming for millennial investors, for any investors, but mom and pop investors. Like the, It's like infill, but the capital version. So let's use Toronto as an example. Last two years, we had 30,000 condo units going up, which was still wasn't enough. Next year, we have only 10,000 so far in the pipeline. So 30,000 already wasn't enough. 10,000 is way less. There's a clear gap of 20,000 units. Now, at the same time, they've made it possible to convert all houses to fourplexes. And on that note, we have another great guest coming up, a construction specialist who specializes in ADUs. Anyway. But, I mean, what do you think generally about this? Is this the end of the condo? Um, hopefully not. I mean, I, I to go back to that high... In, investor and institutional ownership, I would like to see high rise become an institutional asset in Canada. And maybe we see a meaningful push towards purpose-built rental, which we really need. And I do think like if you start having a lot of people think like mom and pop landlords should be good at it, but not everybody listens to this podcast. Not everybody tries really hard to be a good (laughs) investor, you know? And so for the portion of the population who doesn't make, you know, try their best to, to do a good job as investors, there's a lot of investors and landlords who aren't good at it and who shouldn't be doing it. And institutions with purposeful rental in a lot of cases can do that better due to economies of scale. The other piece is that you can get to that kind of scale element with ADUs or missing middle, which I think we need. So hopefully either of those things push in that direction. Anyway, let's cover yeah. that Royal LePage report. Do you want to say anything there before you? Yeah, I was just gonna say, you know, first of all, massive fan of purpose-built rentals. And it's funny, Dan, because a lot of the people like the, the more small cap or, or people that are just on their, you know, first few projects that we speak to across the country are really trying to do this purpose-built rental stuff, whether it's through CMHC or, or whatever kind of financing. But the goal for a lot of the people that we're talking to is, hey, I want to build this sixplex or eightplex or or forty-unit building, and I want to I want to keep it. I want it to be a purpose-built rental, and and I want to run it like that. And and I also just wanted to make a quick comment on on what you said about landlords and you know the amount of people that that shouldn't be landlords. It's funny because. It's the same thing for for landlords and realtors and even mortgage agents. You know, I think a lot of people that are involved in this industry have been sold a a, a dream and and get to see the glitz and the glamour of being a landlord, right? The Lamborghini and the Ferrari that we're going to rent to literally make fun of these people. Um, You know, I can tell you some stories about the glamorous landlord stuff I've had to do over the last few weeks. And, and, you know, we have property managers in play and and all those people, and and it's it's still not like that. So for the amount of people that shouldn't be landlords – you know they they turn into slum lords and they, they you know they are a part of the problem and unfortunately they're usually get the most attention right no you know you don't have tenants going to the landlord tenant board singing people's praises you see the bad things and they get you know they get the most attention so just like not everyone should be a realtor and everyone wants to be not everyone should be a landlord and, and everyone wants to be but anyways i'm i'm just ranting at this point yeah, and and I think it is interesting. Like politically, there does seem to be like a I don't know, like the the dialogue is really shifting. You're seeing like you know rent strikes, and these are in you know large scale rental environments mm-hmm. where like you can assemble enough people where it's meaningful. A lot of I mean, housing was a huge topic in the Toronto election, which is happening literally right now, June 26. Um, rent control being a huge topic, um, you know. But I, I think it is interesting because. ADUs and missing middle and the fourplex thing can actually be an interesting response to the lack of purpose-built rental. The reason we don't see purpose-built rental is because it requires like 
35% equity, whereas condos require mm-hmm. 15% equity. And we did a whole episode on this, but condo owners basically take those losses to subsidize or, or socialize the cost of getting these units built because they believe in the capital appreciation. If that goes away, if the market or if, if rates aren't cheap enough or if capital appreciation isn't good enough, those investors leave. Now what happens? We see a supply shortage um, or we need to see a meaningful response to that through purpose-built rental. Um, but the interesting part, actually, I'm going to save this for another episode because I have a whole thought on it that I want to I want to see through. Yeah, um, yeah. I think we can talk a lot about purpose-built rentals and, and maybe why we aren't seeing them and why they're so much more common in the States and everything. So yeah, let's Well, let's yeah, I mean, that. that's like at scale, it's just capital markets. But I think like there's an interesting concept to be thought of for the four, like for a four unit because you and I could like hypothetically or me and a couple of our buddies could... Um, look good enough on paper to probably get a construction loan to build a fourplex. Whereas no single person could possibly underwrite a billion dollar mm-hmm. construction deal. Right. Like even <laughs> if you are a developer, like just the, the debt to covenant or debt to income ratio is just never going to be good enough. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, let's get to this Royal page report um, that was mentioned there. The star does an article on it. Young adults are investing in income properties ahead of their own homes. Wow, that sounds familiar because I rent a tiny condo and own a bunch of property. So I'm one of those people. You should, um, just, another- you should just buy that condo and, and lose money on it. Like do your, <laughs> do your, do your duty as that's a Canadian. The, that's what all the cool kids are doing these days. Um, this article from Royal Page, this study, more than one in four Canadians plan to purchase an investment property in the next five years. Well, hot damn, would you look at that? of current investors and 23% of non-investors are considering buying an investment property before 2028. So everyone wants to be a real estate investor. Dan, let's go over some of the highlights from this survey. And then I really am looking forward to chatting with about you and with this about you. And then, and then look at some of the comments that we pulled from, from this as well, which I think really paint a picture of, of some very polarizing views in, in Canada here. But anyways, yeah, I, I get enough of those. I try to like, I have to stay out of the comment section lately. I recently did like this, <laughs> this piece of content that was so perfectly executed that you couldn't tell whether or not I was saying the market was going to go up or down. And so I have like half the people commenting saying that I'm an idiot for saying the market's going to crash, which I didn't say in the video. And half the people saying that I'm an idiot for saying the market's not going to crash. <laughs> and then I just basically started tagging them in each other's comments. And if, so if you want to see a great dialogue, it's like literally a Reddit thread at this point of people arguing whether or not the market's going to crash. Very interesting. Amazing. And it actually came from a Reddit thread, which is that Wall Street Bets is shorting the Canadian housing market, which is funny. Anyway, highlights from the survey. Approximately 4.4 million Canadians currently own an investment property. We want to make that 40 million. (laughs) (laughs) 26% of all Canadians say they are likely to buy an investment property within the next five years. A third of Canadian real estate investors own two or more properties. Younger investors, those aged between 18 and 34 years old, are more likely to own more than one investment property compared to their older counterparts aged 35 plus they got it figured out they're going to they're going to the small i almost said cornwall they're going to they're, be, go, they're going across be listening they're going to all those small to markets something. drive till you quantify baby um 15 of residential investors in canada do not own their primary residence the majority of whom are aged 18 to 34 percent or 18 to 34 years you do not measure age in percentage points um that's interesting that's fascinating stat from my perspective actually it really is and i see you guys i'm there with you and i respect you 
you know, I, I, you know, Dan, this goes back to some of the things we've talked about in like the principles of real estate and investing in general, which is delayed gratification, right? If you can sacrifice a little bit, um, it will pay you dividends. There's also another principle um, of real estate investing called math. And um, <laughs> never heard and, of it. And I think we did that. Well, but I think we did this and it was referenced in one of these articles that we're talking about where, you know, Urban Nation came up with this thing that a lot of these condo owners are cash flow negative. So they were counting on um, capital appreciation. And now, you know, you living in a condo who the owner is probably not making money, they're cash flow negative. You're paying a lower monthly payment and you're getting capital appreciation on the pro- other properties where your capital is. I mean, I'm not a math guy and I'm not a rocket surgeon, but I think that that makes sense from my perspective. I, wow. I sound pretty smart when you say it like that. Yeah. Eh? Look at me. Um, this is your virtual pat on the back of the year, by the way. I'll so take it. Tap to um, Nearly one third of investors in Canada have considered selling one or more of their investment properties due to the higher lending rates. And I think that will likely increase. And I think that 30% will turn into much more like 50% with a much larger percentage, say 10 to 15, actually having to sell off those properties due to the rates. Maybe the other 70, whatever, 69% have already sold. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, it does become a time under tension question at this point, mm-hmm. right? It's how how much longer do we spend at these rates? And because the longer it is, if somebody's cash flow negative, they, they cross that bridge of do I lose money fast or do I lose money slow? Right. If you're not, if your outlook isn't that prices are going to go up forever, which who knows? That's the, that's the one question mark and sentiment right now. 20% of investors in the greater Montreal area said they're likely to sell one or more of their investment properties within the next two years. You know what? I got to give a shout out to Royal LePage on this. Smart of them to do this survey because now if the person says, oh, are you likely to sell your property in the next two? You always see the realtors do this in their Instagram stories, eh? Like it's like, oh, I'm just yeah. asking a question, guys. Just gathering some market research. It's like, bam, you're on a list. Anyway. Well done. Royal uh, Page. This nice. percentage rises to 24% and 28% in the greater regions of Toronto and Vancouver. Actually really smart because, you know, they are literally do it like they they now can predict their whole pipeline right they're like oh how many listings do we expect to get over the next couple of years right? and anyway. what kind of listing right well what are the asset classes yeah. that, that are being listed i mean everyone's going to be wanting to learn about duplexes and then isn't there something coming out soon about learning about multifamily property yeah i think real estate 101.ca <laughs> no i don't know I, gotta, I should probably buy that domain maybe um <laughs> so it is funny because um I think like that this whole thing is about investing now and all of these Royal page surveys before, like early we've covered quite a few of these last year. There was one about like investment properties, foreign ownership, all homeowner stuff, right? Nothing investment focused, but there's a lot of conversation around real estate investing right now, which is good. It's good for us because it means we get lots of listeners. Hey, shout out to our listeners. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's the, the thing ends with this statement that says young Canadians are more inclined than ever to invest. Although many young Canadians are struggling to get a foot on the property ladder, the youngest group of real estate investors, your 18 to 34s, are the most likely to have more than one residential property compared to their older counterparts. Good work, guys. I'm, I'm very proud of all of you. 44% of the youngest investor cohort own two or more investment properties, significantly higher than those aged 35 to 54, which is 29%, and those 55 or older, which is 25% 
of a particular note. This does go against stat scan data, by the way, which is or stat scan data, which is actually real data. This is a survey. I'm just saying. Um, mm-hmm. Of a particular very, note, sixty-seven percent of regular or younger investors own their primary residence, compared to eighty-eight percent and ninety-five percent of investors from thirty-five to fifty-four or fifty-five and older. So, lower primary residence ownership, higher investor ownership. Maybe, just maybe, there's a shift happening in the world because too many people have been listening to this podcast. <laughs> now, Dan, before we unpack this and provide some of our insights on this, which which if you've been listening to the show for a while, these insights should be fairly obvious. Um, let's read a couple of these comments back and forth because this, again, just paints a picture of, I think, the two camps that, that, you know, that look at real estate investing and real estate likely in just very different ways. So I'll take the first one here. Um, Good on them, exclamation mark. These young adults are savvy enough to appreciate the fact that real estate prices simply do not go down for any length of time and that housing is an excellent investment to make. And those who fail to see that potential or to make an effort and sacrifice to enter the market similarly themselves can only benefit from a myriad of rental opportunities open for them. Or if you can't beat them, join them. Did they put their... um real estate website in that comment <laughs> i was gonna say so i didn't include names or anything and it's only a first name so you know uh, this could have easily been written by an investor or an agent or uh, someone who wants you know, to be investing you know but obviously would, you see there i would argue that like that's true like you know yeah, that, you know yeah. yeah i think you know i think anyone you know i think a, a boomer looking at this with, with you know even if they're not an investor themselves and they see their children stu- doing stuff like this they're probably thinking that's a good idea. Anyways, Dan, the next one's funny. Take it away. Owning more than one house in Toronto should be against the law. This one has <laughs> six dislikes and five likes. You know what? I mean, this is like really interesting because this is becoming one of those things. I think it's, is it Singapore where basically your down payment requirement goes up every time you buy a property? So like property number one, you can buy with a you know small down payment. Then property number two, you have to put 25% down or whatever. They keep growing the barrier to entry. So by the time you get to like property number three or four or five, it's like 50% or more. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're trying to encourage or discourage, sorry, the financialization of housing and hoarding of, of housing. And, and look, like, I don't think it, I think saying it should be against the law is like a little bit extreme, kind of like the, like it's your pendulum swing stuff, like defund the police, totally. like, or whatever, totally. you know, like there's, yeah. there's like the bold sweeping statements that like nobody really knows whether or not that's that actual objective. But I think that, something needs to be done to reconcile for these huge disparities that are happening. And because you're seeing what happens now where you almost have like these two groups of population forming that are very much against one another. And that's like not a good way to run a society. Right? No, not at all. Um, next one here. Wait, I thought prices are way too high and it's that age group that's having a hard time affording dot, 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 but they're investing in houses now. Triple question mark oh right looks like they took the cheap money too that one has seven likes and one dislikes i mean it is you see the feeling people have there yeah it is good i'm actually glad you put these comments in there's this couldn't help myself yeah well what is it like they say the true the true joke is always in the comment section or whatever um so last one, this represents the commodification of housing. Every home purchased by an investor, foreign or domestic, takes away from an opportunity from a family or person who wants to buy their own home. This is lucrative in part due to the tax treatment. In most cases, the gain on the sale of an income property is treated as will be treated as capital gains with only half of it will be taxed. Half of it taxed as income, by the way. 
is the real answer. Um, in contrast, if you buy a GIC, you will pay tax on 100% of the gain that you own. The government should act to eliminate the capital gains treatment on investor-owned housing for all years in which the, the occupied by the owner uh, or was not occupied by the owner or their family members. This would be reasonable and would still allow people to receive capital gains rate on their family cottage or other recreational property or on a home in which the child or parent of the owner lives. Reasonable. Honestly, I actually don't like yeah. really think... And, I, and to be honest, it wouldn't surprise me if we actually do see a cranking up of the tax on the golden goose, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like whether or not you think that the government is doing monetary modern monetary theory right now, if if you do, I'm not in really the camp that, that I do think that, but if you do believe, because some people do think it's like a whole MMT thing going on, the end game of MMT is to tax that money back out of the economy. Um, cause we've learned, we're learning right now. It's very difficult to get all of this money that's in the economy inflationizing out of the economy. That's a new word, by the way. Uh, it's a <laughs> Nick Hill it. original. I learned it from my um, buddy. Um, so, uh, so yeah, let's, let's chat about this right, right here at the end of the show, Dan. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on seeing this many, you know, the comments are one thing, but let's go back to the article. You know, there, there is obviously a strong, strong driving force with, within, particularly it seems young Canadians to to own property, but not in the traditional sense of, you know, the white picket fence, the golden retriever and all that, you know, nonsense. But they wanna they wanna buy property as an investment. They want to get to get in the business of real estate investing. Um you know, I, f- I find it fascinating, but w- what's your take here? I think the comments summarize it well. I mean, I think that the one says that the people are savvy enough to say, like, look, the system is pretty much rigged against us. You know, we're doomed to be renters unless we, or not, not that there's anything wrong with being a renter. No offense, Nick. Um, yeah, but, you know, like, you. but, you know, that, that um, we're doomed to not own anything, I guess is what I mean to say, because of these asset bubbles, they'll be inflating forever and, and be reserved to this kind of renter's economy, which is where we're seeing the, the economy progressing. And we've seen it happen in other places. Is. like you can see what the cycle looks like and how it plays out um and so it's like they say if you can't beat them join them and and one of the reasons this is happening is because of that other comment the commodification of housing and there is this this unfairness of from a tax perspective i mean i i propose this thing like hypothetically by the way i don't actually think you should do this but if you gave people who were renting um a tax rebate on all of the rent that they paid like fully you, you didn't have to tax you could ta- tax deduct 100 percent of your rent um, then they would have sort of a similar tax advantage to people who have a primary residence. So you're leveling the playing field for people who have a primary residence versus um, renting. Hypothetical, by the way, just completely. But but again, like it's how do you equalize these the um, input um, imbalances and the output imbalances? Because we're seeing the output imbalances, these things that are perceived as unfairness, and I would not disagree in most cases. So you almost get unfair inputs, unfair outcomes, right? Yeah, um, no, I, I, that's really well said. And yeah, and so I think a lot of people are kind of really wisening up to that right now. And this is where you actually get to like cycles. You get this thing called the political business cycle, where you where you basically just shift back and forth from politicians who make inflation and politicians who fight inflation. If you really look up like political business cycles, we talked about this in in our episode about cycles. I can't remember which one mm-hmm. it is, but let me hit this last headline here because it was it's worth saying. And we did just kind of get a little doomsdayish for a bit there, but. Um, it, we just had the strongest spring market ever. 
right? Ever. So Ooh, fastest home price appreciation for the first five months of the year. I know we're very short on time here, but second fastest home price appreciation in a consecutive four month period. The The last fastest was June to September, 2020. So coming right out of that COVID lockdown, 19.79% was the fastest four month period. And then we just saw February to May, 2023. This is Canada, by the way, Canadian house price, 17.86%. Uh, average wow. yearly home price change trajectories. Yeah. Beginning Crazy. of January. Yeah. So, um, and, and just, I'm looking at the chart here that also shows, uh, what were the other ones? I think 2021 and 2022 or sorry. Yeah. 2021, 2022. Um, and they, after this, this big run up, they, they went down just a heads up. Um, and cause it's to be expected. And we talk about seasonality a lot on this, like, that we did go a little bit higher than seasonality, but it'd be reasonable to expect based on the past that prices will go down for the next three months, June, July, August. I'm going to say prices down August after it depends on whether or not we're in a recession. Love it. Okay. I'm holding it to that. We'll pick this back up in August and see if Dan's prediction is right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We hope you got a ton of value out of today's episode. If you want to check out the merch, Hit up the store. It'll be in the show notes. If you want to join one of the meetups or reach out and get involved in any of the meetup stuff, reach out to Dan and I and check out the meetups link in the show notes as well. And if you're interested in joining our first version of our course, groundbreaking stuff, send us an email and we'll get you set up with advanced access. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037.